Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of the Chaos and Shadow podcast. My name is Kyle, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Pagan. How are you tonight? I am so excited because we have some really fun people we're talking to tonight. I agree. We are joined here by Connor Randall and Carl Pfeiffer, uh, two that were on Hellier, Spirits of the Stanley, and much more. I am so excited because we got a chance to sit down and talk to Greg and Dana in December. We talked about Phenomenicon. We talked about Hellier, all the great stuff. We even talked a little bit about the crone, just just a teaser out there for folks. Uh, And in this interview, very especially exciting because we're in the middle of talking Mothman on our other episodes. So we're definitely going to have some questions about Indrid Cold in there, Connor and Carl. Welcome aboard. How are you two tonight? Good, good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, just having a nice time here in quarantine month 11, but we're we're good. We're all here together chatting, <laughs> yeah. so we're good. Oh, we feel you. We had that conversation this morning that was like, really, when are we getting out there? When can we start going <laughs> to these you know conventions again? When can we go shake our friend's hand in person? That will be a, a day we, we readily look forward to. I think it's, it's hard because we're getting to the one year mark right yeah. now. So I think everyone's yes. starting to recall the things that they last did, you know, oh. uh, th- that's becoming very of the mind. And we're all looking back fondly on those moments. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. a dark thought. <laughs> the anniversary <laughs> of the thought. last time. It is we a really out. dark thought. And it seems to be a recurring theme that, that just seems to be happening with everyone with the pandemic fatigue and all the other terribleness that's associated with it. So props to everybody who's out there surviving the best you can seriously and and it's what brought us all together here doing this sort of thing i mean pagan and i got into hell your last uh probably january which is what introduced us Mm -hmm. to both of you Uh, sadly unfortunately what like a month two months later we were locked in and uh those paranormal vibes it really really stuck with us we decided we needed to start talking about it so here we are chatting with you two and I thought maybe what well, we like to do is a lot of guests. You could do some background on yourselves. Tell us about what you do. Because, yeah, we met you through Hellier, but we've gone back since, watched Spirits of the Stanley. What brought you two together in collaboration? Yeah, well, I mean, I can I can tell you my my ghost hunting career kind of took off when I was cast on Ghost Hunters Academy uh, way back in the day. One of the Ghost Hunters spinoff shows where they were kind of doing a competition reality show version of the show. And that was in 2009. And that sort of carried me into a job at the Stanley Hotel, um, leading the weekend public ghost hunts up there, which uh, which I did for five years and about 250 investigations on the property up there. Um, and that was where I met Connor because he was kind of a concierge tour guide role and eventually kind of segued into the paranormal investigation role when we needed to, to flesh out a third investigator to, to join the ranks. And we've basically been hanging out together ever since when the, uh, when the Stanley kind of uh, waned and, and did away with their paranormal focused content. Uh, we started looking for what the next project would be. And it took about a year and a half, but it was really hellier was what that became. And we've kind of uh, ridden that uh, roller coaster ever since. Yeah, I have uh, Carl and I uh, met at the Stanley Hotel. Uh, must have been, shoot, probably almost 10 years ago now is the first time we ever met. But we uh, both have the fortunate stance of growing up um, like an hour away from the Stanley. And so uh, that sort of is is its own paranormal mecca in a sense. And we were lucky to kind of have it in our backyards. And Carl was uh, the guy who was coming off of this uh 
random, you know, cable spinoff show and working there. And I was this guy who was just a teenager who was obsessed with ghosts and just never left the building alone. And so, uh, just so happened that, uh, we were able to meet up and had that, that basically, uh, shared interest. uh, started working together and then, Carl got really into photography, started getting better and better at it. And, and in my opinion, I, I sort of like melded into video work and we naturally sort of became quote unquote paranormal documentarians in that sense. That's fantastic. And whew, the video work is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, this is, Thank we're you. saying this for the millionth time it's been mm-hmm. said, but the projects that come out, it, they're just wonderful, totally gorgeous and captivating. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They're just such wonderful projects. And, it, you know, our go-to is always Hellier. It's kind of like the top tier of everything that is compared to in the paranormal field now for <laughs> us. Um, and it's just such beautifully shot in every way. So you guys did such a phenomenal job with it. Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it's cool to look back on because Spirits of the Stanley was really where I kind of got my feet wet with like trying to tell um, a kind of a TVS kind of a story. And so uh, even right before that, Spirits of the Stanley proper is kind of like the web series part. But before that, we were kind of doing little vlog posts about um, what was happening at the hotel. So it, it's fun for even me to look back and you can literally watch the linear kind of progression as I like figure out more and more about filmmaking mm-hmm. and, and kind of what I'm doing and and uh, by the end of season two of Hellier, it's I'm really proud of what what's been coming out. I still have a lot of like stuff that I'm aspiring to get to and keep wanting to make it better because I'm a perfectionist. But uh, uh, this is how much of a perfectionist it was. <laughs> what, what was it, Carl? Like two weeks ago, he was re-uploading and updating the episodes on Amazon with new color grades and yes! stuff like that. I, <laughs> it's, it's a work. That, I mean, I don't want to fiddle too much with the old stuff once it's posted, but that one was kind of a unique circumstance where we were down to the wire to try to release season two. Uh, when we were and so I was actually at Connor's house there we, we did what we called Camp Hellier just for like a week just like trying to finish every aspect of the project and I uh, I changed some settings on the, the look of the show last minute and kind of scrambled to make everything like match and look right with these new settings and uh, I was never like fully happy with like how that kind of came out so I was always fiddling and we're actually working on the, the Blu-ray season 2 release right now and I was like if we're going to put this permanently onto disc it needs to be like you know i want to be happy with it so i I spent december kind of redoing that so oh that's so exciting so we know that this is kind of the go-to question that everybody asks but what got you very interested in the paranormal what made you sit down and say you know what i'm going to become a ghost hunter that's what i want to do for a living (laughs) yeah um i mean i'll i'll jump in i i have uh, I always talk about this uh, for this kind of question, but I feel like everyone has two different paths to the paranormal. One is that they had an experience uh, at, at some point in their lives that changed their perspective on the world. And they, you know, went on a quest for answers, so to speak, to try to figure that out. And the flip side is just the sort of like passion that you have for it, that you've always kind of had for it. And um, that was the case with me, whatever, whatever it was has always been with me since as far back as I can remember, just a a kind of a compulsion and an interest in the dark, mysterious, creepy aspects of the world. And that was all, all things paranormal. And so it was really the ghost hunters, uh, kind of, um, train took off, you know, when I was in, in late high school and, uh, kind of, 
got to tailor that interest more directly into ghosts for those next few years as I, I kind of built the career out of it. Um, and so I've, I've had a number of experiences since on varying different levels, but it was always just a passion that, uh, that just wouldn't let me go and, and trying to figure out any possible way that I could make a career path or a creative career path, uh, mesh with that paranormal passion was really ultimately the goal. That was the dream. I think that I personally am sort of a, a hybrid between those two things. I did have some experiences early on that, that sort of egged me on where like I saw a figure in my childhood bedroom and then I had like uh, growing, going to the Stanley, even as just a little kid, like visiting for like a business conference, I saw a door lock by itself. And that was like, well, well, whoa, wait a second. That sort of shakes some foundations early on if it happens to you when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, and then right at that same time, like ghost hunters came out, loved the show, wanted to be on my own little version of the show would make my own little version of the show with my friends and just like sort of never stopped documenting that. And then the passion continues to grow from there. Once you're bit with the bug like that, you just keep going and going and, and what a fun thing to do. Like how, how as an extroverted person, like it's such it's, I mean, you guys probably feel for me here. Uh, it's, it's you, you get to talk with people about the greatest questions of our existence, you know, and it's such a, it's such a cool thing to just sit and postulate about with, with people. So it's, I'm really enjoying the space and, and yeah, we have just got a real passion for it. Like, like everybody else who's listening to this, I'm sure. Postul One day we're going to show those videos to the world, Connor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will subscribe to whatever YouTube yeah. or channel that's going to be on because I'd love to see them. Uh, but those are, it's very true. You know, I, I know for Kyle and I, these are definitely been, this is a passion project to us, ours mm -hmm. that we've been working on. And the paranormal has always kind of been, I guess you could say ultimately in our blood. Yeah. And so we, we've just definitely been loving the ride so far and we're going to keep loving it as long as it will get to ride this ride. That's exactly it. And and like you said, the postulating part, I mean, you're right. Picking people's brains about this and, and hearing their thoughts is is fascinating. <laughs> and case in point, bringing us to our next question, if we were not talking with such amazing people being so active in investigative methods, we wouldn't know about the Estes method, which has quickly become a love of mine. Anytime uh, someone's bringing that topic up or they're trying to implement into an investigation, you got me hooked. I'm ready to watch. So if you could maybe set the Estes method up for us, tell our audience a bit about how that works and uh, how that process came about, how to come into fruition. Yeah. Uh, I guess the short answer for the Estes method itself, it's a uh, parapsychological divination, whatever you want to call it, kind of method where um, essentially what you're doing is it is a blinded uh, spirit box experiments. So, so we are taking a spirit box, an SB7 uh, spirit box in our case, scanning the radio stations like people have done for decades, all the way back to those popular mechanics people back in the 80s who just like changed Radio Shack radios to scan really quickly. Most people these days know about it from ghost adventures and paranormal TV shows. But basically, we were taking that box um, and we would play it out loud sometimes at our Stanley investigations when, when we would host them. And uh, Carl and Michelle Tate, myself, got a little bit frustrated um, with it over time, or it was like, 
there was clearly a confirmation bias where people could kind of hear what they wanted to hear in the noise. And so um, uh, Carl one night was just sort of like, well, why don't we just have like one person listen to it? So he took these old Apple iPod uh, earbud headphones and uh, plugged it into the headphone jack on the spirit box and had some intriguing things happen. That's actually on video that's in spirits of the Stanley. And then basically the experiment got more and more in depth and, and grew from there to where now what we do is we have a certain uh, methodology of going about it, but the equipment that we use for the Estes method, which is called because it was uh, sort of founded in Estes park, Colorado, where the Stanley hotel is, is you take a spirit box, a set of soundproof headphones, great big canned drummer headphones that block out all the sound around you uh, or as much as you can and a blindfold and you have one person sit and listen spouting off what they're hearing across the device and the other individuals in the room or across a radio or across a baby monitor are asking questions of the spirits and asking the spirits to sort of channel their answers through that person listening to that scanning radio feed um it has since when we started doing it back in you know five years ago uh it was really it was just sort of our fun way to connect with the spirits, especially our, our, on our own in the middle of the night. Even after we would clock out, we would go back down to the buildings uh, in the Stanley and just play with this method. And and it's since kind of blown up, um, kind of now it's on all these TV shows and, and stuff like that. And it's kind of making the rounds in the paranormal community, which is which is cool to see. Absolutely. I, I Like you say, I've seen it a couple times recently. I, I love that you called out the confirmation bias that comes along with the spirit box, because as a viewer, when we, as you know, most TV shows, they hear some noise, they say what they think it is, they put it in the, the, the captions on the screen, and then you're, you're led to go and believe that sort of thing. But sometimes if you're in the investigative field, if you've played with a spirit box yourself, you watch those shows and go, uh, uh-huh. I, I didn't I didn't hear that. Yeah, this doing it through the Astis method, though, like you said, not only takes out some of that bias, but we've gotten to see some really cool back and forth conversations. The one that comes to my mind is uh, especially Hellier season one on the, the porch there where it's actually calling out Carl's name. Maybe Carl Ardo, but Carl, nonetheless, that was a fascinating conversation. That's gone down as one of my like top five favorite that we've ever done or recorded. And, and of course there's a ton that aren't even on video at all. I mean, this is something we practice and, and I've, you know, even practiced in my home and stuff like that. It's, it's really, really intriguing to think what may actually be going on. And, and of course we can sit and theorize about it all day, but it kind of requires you to turn off. I saw um, in a in a book recently, I read an, an analogy that I liked that you turn off the virus scanners in your brain. You kind of uh, have to sit back, feel and and hear what you're hearing and just spout it off in the moment. And whatever subconscious or, or psychical information that comes through, um, whether it is on the box or not, is up for debate. It's it's an interesting question, but the voices are there and, and people who are doing this are hearing it. So, uh, yeah, its sources are uh, still a mystery sometimes. Absolutely. That is absolutely it. amazing. <laughs> so continuing the conversation about uh, Carl Ardo there for a second, in Hellier, we are introduced to the storyline meshing in with the famous Mothman prophecies from Keel, uh, brought up in season one as you're looking through the ink in the black. And 
we're led along to the character of Indrid Cold, who has become a little, well, maybe a lot inflated from the original text from Woody Derenberger's uh, Visitors from Lanulos. The character has really grown into something of his own, and I would love to spend some time talking with you guys about this this potential person, this visitor, who may or may not be able to live up to 175 years of age. He's a fascinating one, and maybe in part because of the the myths that have come along with him. So if you guys could, maybe tell us a little bit of background on him and 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 how he came and crossed with your case. Yeah, uh, the, the, the whole Mothman story intermixing with Hellier is a really interesting one. Um, we talk about it as the the first two episodes develop uh, of Hellier, but it, it was really strange because that was never supposed to be incorporated into that story by any stretch. It was at most for me just a comparison where I was kind of like coming off of the Stanley and as many ghost hunts as we were doing, um, you know, as, as anyone who's ghost hunting can understand, like you spend so much time sitting in dark rooms, talking to the shadows and the spiders and like nothing happens that like, I, I was really getting a di- desire for like one of those super strange, high strangeness cases like the Mothman. And you're like, where are these like towns that are having just these right. twists and turns and these weird stories and these weird visitors and, and things are happening. And so when I heard Greg's story about Hellier and the strange gentleman's experience with this, this, these creatures um, and the way that the town also seemed to have these strange experiences too, I wanted to follow up on that. And I was like, let's dive into some of these weirder cases. Um, because I wanted a case like the Mothman. And then even in the first episode where much of that was shot before we went down to Hellier, that was kind of the backstory stuff. Greg even talks about Keel in that um, again in a non-connected manner, but just kind of saying that he liked the diversity of phenomena and the way that Keel looked at that as kind of a spectrum of paranormal happenings. Um, and so it's, it shocked all of us to get in the car. And I was reading through these old emails and looking through Alan Greenfield's uh, appendix uh, where he interviewed this Terry Rist character. And to figure out that this email from Terry Rist to Greg mentioning these cryptic terms like ink and black um, was actually directly referring to his meeting of Indrid Cold allegedly in seemingly the late 70s was a big shock because all of a sudden it expanded this mythos that had happened in this, this initial story to now potentially have something to do with the Mothman um, or injured cold himself as a, as an individual. So that was like a big surprise that though we'd mentioned it, we were not expecting there to actually be a connection. And we continued to get somewhat synchronistic connections after that. And so injured cold was always kind of like an outlier to the case where he was mentioned in this email, but he didn't have anything to do with the original case per se. And he was mentioned in the, the appendix of Greenfield's book. So we always like, and you see in the first two seasons, us kind of juggling that balance where it's kind of like, is this a connection or is this kind of a throwaway thing? And how much do we do of both? And I know Connor can speak more directly to uh, injured cold himself and that connection uh, as an individual, but that's sort of the overall framework of the weird tension and surprise of him even being involved in this project. Yeah, injured cold as a as a whole. Do you want to? Um, should I go over like a brief background of the story before we start like making weird connections or anything? You know, if if you would like to, we gave our audience a tiny primer, but uh, I I'd love to hear it if you want to. 
Yeah, no, in short, uh, I'll just the just the two sentence version is Indrid Cold was a being who appeared to a um uh seemingly innocent uh sewing machine salesman who was commuting on his way home one night uh in early November of nineteen sixty-six uh in Marietta, Ohio, um heading back to his home in West Virginia and uh was stopped by this craft that basically cut off his car on the highway. Um and a man got out, walked to the passenger side of the car, and started to uh, seemingly telepathically communicate with him, uh, talking with him while he was sitting in the car, looking like a normal man, acting like a normal man, talking like a normal man, but um, had walked out of this seemingly extraterrestrial craft. And he looked like us, maybe a little bit tanner, um, had his hair slicked back, was dressed very nicely. And he introduced himself as cold. Now, one of the discrepancies that isn't I try and point out uh, when I can is that uh, the initial encounter, and we know this because Darren Berger did an interview right after he had this bizarre encounter. He didn't say his first name was Indrid. He just introduced himself as cold. And it wasn't until later on when Woodrow Derenberger claimed that he kept meeting with this man, with this individual, that he said his full name was Indrid Cold. And so the entire encounter seemed to happen for basically all the rest of, of Derenberger's life from what we can gather and and even moving on to his family because his his daughter Tanya, um, who we talked to in the show, is now um claiming that she's that she's had a lot of visits with Indrid Cold as well. It's a fascinating story of just this alien, extraterrestrial, ultra-dimensional being, whatever you want to call it, um, sort of befriending uh, this family and potentially other area families, but we're unsure of that as of yet um, in that area and acting as a sort of peaceful being ready to talk to them. The the thing that kind of gets misconstrued about him is that he became known as the grinning man on the internet and Reddit and kind of got got skewed that way just because basically he said Woodrow Derenberger said oh he had a, a nice smile while he was talking to me um so it's a it's a bit of a convoluted story but a fascinating story that originated way back on a highway in in 1966 and um of course in our case Greg our friend uh, received emails saying in coded message hey Indrid Cold is still here on earth and so we were sort of wondering what might be going on with that I love that. And I'm so glad you called out the name component. That is mm-hmm. one thing we dropped in the last episode to people was saying the first encounter, it's just cold. So if you're if you're seeing sources online that are telling you otherwise, you might want to take a, a thorough look at, at their procedure um, because that stood out to me in reading through it. Like you said, the grinning man has become its own entity. And through that, I think a lot of the the lore seems to have gotten very distorted. It's funny. It gets into like, if you want to take as much of a a quote unquote rational or skeptical hat onto this as we can, um, if you're looking at this case and let's say you're interviewing somebody as a witness to some sort of injured cold phenomena in like a courtroom and it's like, well, you can't say, because at that time Mm -hmm. he was also saying a lot of, uh, this is how I think human beings should live. This is where I come from. This is what it's like on my planet. This, these are the values that I follow. And 
at what point do uh, it, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's, it's, it is a bit of a pet peeve. I will say that people sort of pick and choose different parts of the injured cold story that they believe um, as told by Darren Berger. So it's like, well, do you agree that, that, that this is what happened here? Because that's when he said his first name was injured or, or are you just picking and choosing what you want to, what you want to believe from these encounters? Um, you could argue that you kind of have to take it all um, if you're going to, to be, subscribing to the idea that that his full name is Indrid Cold. Um, it becomes a really interesting sort of mental battle, I think, for people who look into this case. Really, really I would say that's thing. very true, but it, it's still such a fascinating case to actually dig into because it's so different from so many other cases out there that are in the high strangeness realm. That, that's a very, very true, true statement there. It, uh, we, we've been digging back into it and going through sources that we're very interested in and, and trust. Um, hell, you're obviously being something we're bouncing people off of. Make sure you go and watch that again and again. Just because the way that those story plot points unfold, I, I do have a question that's I guess more generic, Carl, maybe this one would be a good one for you as really as well when you're putting it all together visually. But how do you keep heads and tails of a case that has infinite heads like this? How do you get that into any kind of film project that is concise that people can consume? I mean, that's definitely one of the the biggest challenges of it for sure. Um, I mean, on every level it's, so it's interesting. So I have, I have some background in writing. I went to school for creative writing and I, I self-published two books before I kind of uh, burned out on that and segued into photo and video. And so a lot of that study and background has informed my approach to video work as storytelling now, um, which is very helpful. I think um, a lot of it, like first and foremost, what I always revert back to is, the eyes of the audience, you know, like where are we making leaps that people aren't going to necessarily kind of follow? Um, and I, I think that it, it blends very nicely in my own sort of uh, perspective because, you know, I, like many of us, I'm, I'm kind of textbook. I want to believe, right. The mm -hmm. Fox Mulder, uh, kind of <laughs> moniker, but, um, and I, I love this stuff and I want to believe in it all, but, at the same time, I, I have a very kind of skeptic half of my brain that's always trying to like uh, critique and debunk all these experiences and phenomena and stuff like that. Um, and that dynamic of going back and forth between kind of like a skeptic and a believer very much kind of characterizes my perspective on the phenomena. And so I think that that's a very good thing to have as the storyteller because and maybe a little bit myopic, but at the end of the day, like I'm kind of sitting back and like listening to team members, theories and, and stories and anecdotes. And I'm thinking like, what is kind of a rational jump from A to B to C to D and in which spots are we going like A to J, you know, and like, we're, it's a little too far. So I'm always trying to bring a lens to it of kind of a, like a logical, simple, escalation um in, in in the progression there and and bringing support to it in that way um things get more complicated when you kind of look at a time frame and how to like weave those together season one was very simple because we went out for basically a week uh, a couple days to this town of hellier and i wanted to bring people along on our journey of of trying to figure out if this was real or not and 
let people experience these weird kind of synchronistic coincidences along with us as we went. And you have to kind of get down into the mud to experience those things as viscerally as we did, or at least to have even the chance of doing so and not make them just kind of random throwaway bits of information. Season two got more complex because new emails came in before we went and did follow up on season one stuff. So at what point do you introduce a new twist in the case? but you don't want to take a left turn and then go back and revisit something from season one when everyone wants to know what, you know, the follow-up is on this new stuff. So wound up telling season two completely very non-linearly, you know, the first Mm -hmm. three episodes happened after we already knew about the emails, but we needed to cover those things before we introduced the emails. So there was a lot of, you know, kind of sitting down and shuffling the timeline and and trying to make things work. And usually from a writing perspective, once you start doing that, some things are pretty clear and it's usually like one or two things that don't necessarily fit. And that's when you spend the most time on it is trying to figure out how kind of individual bits of information where they can fit in. Connor even understands because like we'll talk sometimes on the phone and I'll bounce ideas off him where I'm like, where should I put this scene? Here's why it won't work here, here. What do you think? Um, so a lot of it at the end of the day is just trying to like bring that lens of the audience to it where you want to tell a compelling story um, as best you can, but you also have some frameworks to get it to fit into and you want it to be something that like isn't going to lose people, um, which isn't to say that the the weirdness is a worry so much as we just want to like get there in a logical way, uh, so that by the end of season two you're you're deep in the rabbit hole and maybe you don't know how you've gotten there, but you're you're into it and uh, and we haven't just kind of seemed like crazy paranoid conspiracy theorists or something um, because we all approach it with that same kind of logic ourselves. I just have to tell it appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got his work cut out for them in that respect. One of the harder things too, I think in terms of like, like making documentaries, a lot of times I'm sure for a lot of, I can't obviously speak for the whole like genre, but like have a clear beginning, middle and end. But when you're talking about cases of the unexplained and of, of this bizarre high strangeness phenomena, it doesn't always have like a solid closing note. So that's always been a thing for us too. Or it's like, where do we, what happens with this? Because we're not, making anything up where we're just telling the story as it happens. And so the audience, we were fortunate enough to have people who watch it. A lot of people really be along with, with us, I guess, for that journey in this real open source ongoing case. And some people were very upset that it wasn't, that it didn't, that season one didn't end with footage of a goblin in a mine. And so we sort of tongue in cheek made fun of it. And now we've sold more t-shirts that say one star, no goblins, Amazon review than, than other t-shirts. So it's, you know, something to, something to keep in mind for anybody out there who's, who's sort of a storyteller in the paranormal too. I think, I think that's well said. There is something very, very, very strong about the community around it. Hellier has Mm -hmm. uh, been such a, I don't know, such a call to folks uh, out there that are interested in the high strangeness. And it's really given them, I think, a, a, a cool meeting space where we can laugh at the the no goblins. Or, like I saw in that clip going around from uh, yesterday, a certain Connor and Tyler <laughs> Instagram live. Now we got goblins on camera. So that has that has changed for the record. <laughs> Game changer. Mm-hmm. Season three. It has Just next level on Instagram. Plot shift. I'm sure everybody has those friends. Those friends like Tyler, where it's just like 
you'll love them. But you know, like when you answer the phone, like it's not going to be five minutes. Like, it's like, all right, here we go. And it's, and you just dive in with them and I'm, I'm all about it. It's amazing. But, but truly is amazing. you got people going down this rabbit hole and, and we're in there with you. I, I'm mm-hmm. absolutely fascinated by the case. My background in the paranormal was probably finding Mothman when I was young, probably because the film came out. Uh, but aside from the film and whatever it gets, you know, right or wrong in the vein of it, uh, it, the Mothman caught my attention, the whole case, because we're working with so many figures that, well, make it high strangeness. We've got lights in the sky. We've got these potential men in black coming around that don't always have human-like appearances. I, what is that like working with a case being both a hellier Kentucky and also like you're veering into the Mothman area? What is that like kind of digging through that rich background? And again, like we said earlier, even some artificial lore constructed around it. How do you guys make heads and tails of things? It's a lot of fun to, once you put on the possibility into your head of these window areas, quote unquote, as Keel called them, that there can be moments in time and space when something seems to open up and all manner of strangeness occurs. And then for whatever reason, it closes back down. Once you sort of accept that as a possibility, the fun of going into these places and being like, Let's talk about everything. Um, what happened here? What happened here? What happened here? Uh, just it gets that much more crazy and you're willing to embrace and accept it all. And I think for me that that was the case with Mothman, with Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and also the case in a sense with Hellier as well, even though it didn't start out that way. It kind of started out as a crypto case. And then as it sort of expanded into more and more. But um, to go back really quickly, like like we were talking about injured cold a second ago, it becomes part of that whole window area idea of, of everything fitting in. We we can't deny the linear timeline effect that injured cold or the cold encounter occurred before the Mothman sighting started to really happen. Um, and so it's like, did he kind of cause that? Was he just, was it both? Did they both come out of the same interdimensional right. loophole? Um it was an hour away. Is that too far? Like how big was this? Is this range? What's going on there? There are a lot of fun questions to consider and document. I think a lot of it, like, you know, I mean, a lot of it goes back to, to kind of my background, just growing up with general paranormal, everything, you know, the, the time life books on every paranormal topic that you have, you know, like it was all, everything went and then things got channeled into the ghosts for so long, you know, for, for 10 or 15 years. And so um, expanding that and getting weird with it is definitely the the goal. So to find a case that does have that sort of expansion and weirdness is great. Um, and so the fact that the Hellier case was even more than just a guy who sees weird creatures on his property, but did have the extension that it did was always a good thing. Um it is intimidating when you're drawing on that much because all of a sudden now the entire paranormal world and all of the people who have come before you doing research on it and presenting ideas, um, there is some uh, intimidating elements. And it's it's one thing to like kind of be like a, a passing UFO buff having read like, you know, um, a, a lot of the, the people who have been working in that world for a long time. Um, 
and you can kind of, you know, you can rap with it enough that you can hold your own, but you definitely see it with us um, uh, towards the end of season two, when we get into some more of the esoteric and the magical and the like structured magical uh, practices that are happening, because that starts to get into an area where, you know, I know that I can speak to Connor uh, for Connor and myself when it's like, haven't really dug into too much of that. So there are areas where it's, it's more uh, intimidating and overwhelming and exciting though, because you get to explore new areas of the paranormal. So it's a bit of a balance in that regard. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's like hearing a story that says like in impress me, like compel me. Um, And so that's the validation elements, just like you're on a ghost hunt. If somebody else experiences the same thing as you, that adds credence to it. So with this whole hellier story, we're looking for validating elements. And it's less about sort of like trying to have to constantly form an opinion about like everyone's work that's already existing in the field. So much as just like being impressed by the work that validates uh, a lot of the things that are related to our case, which isn't to say that we're like picking and choosing our favorites so much as that's, it's kind of research in some ways, you know, where, where you start to realize um, the interesting or compelling aspects of your case being validated in the historical pursuits. And that's exciting for us and everything that's exciting for us. I want to try to translate to make it exciting for the audience. So that I think is where the expansion gets fun is because you get to like bring in these components and like have these wow moments that like research and reading can bring um, that that's an exciting part, even though it is kind of intimidating to have everything at your disposal right (laughs) that is definitely very true we find that a lot in our own research that that sometimes there's so much research out there that it's a little bit daunting and then you find ties into something else and this links into that and by the time you get done it you know it's you kind of feel like your brain broke a little bit but at Mm -hmm. the same time you're just like this is so super cool that i can't explain even where to begin with this Mm -hmm. so my question for you, though, I guess it, you did answer this a little bit, but maybe you can expand on it. Um, and Connor, I'd like to hear your take on this as well. Is since you guys have filmed Hellier, have your investigative styles changed at all? I mean, it's kind of interesting uh, for mine. I don't know. I've always had kind of a there's been a flavor of like non traditional investigative element to it, uh, more so for me than Connor, and he can probably speak to it. But um, sort of the most traditional, at least at, at my millennial age ghost hunting is kind of the background of that, you know, and like using a lot of equipment, monitoring the environment and trying to like get a conclusion for your, your client. Um, I didn't have tons of that, uh, in, in my background. Um, I did have a little, of course, but I never really invested in the gear and I never really had a ton of that stuff. Um, my investigative style was like really defined by being at the Stanley where it was about trying to make the night educational and entertaining and interesting to the guests that were up at the Stanley hotel. And then to have on the personal side, my own sort of like interesting or educational or entertaining experiences directly um, without feeling the the pressure of the sort of like now cliches of you have to prove the existence of ghosts or get a bunch of evidence and like all these things that like um, as a non-scientist, I can't do anyways. So that's been sort of like my background this whole time. And Hellier has reinforced that because now I do that holding the camera and and framing the shots. And so my investigation style has changed because like, I'm a little less engaged in the investigations. It's weird when I do a ghost hunt and I'm not holding a camera. I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> um, so it's, it's changed in that regard because I always want to be filming and telling stories and seeing what happens. Um, and I've kind of gotten a little bit more skeptical too. Um, 
probably in a jaded old age, cynical kind of a way. Not that I'm old, but just like, I, I think personally, I've just been in more of a rut for the last couple of years where I haven't had that like, wow, experience in a while. And when mm-hmm. you haven't had that in a while, you get kind of like, is this all nonsense? Is this all bullshit? You know? <laughs> um, and that's kind of the headspace I've been in for a while. Um, so I am very objective, like very removed from what's happening. Uh, and that's where I've sort of evolved, but that's less of like a movement towards like an end place for myself. You know, that's not like I'm trying to go. Cause I think that that's the best way to investigate. It's just like, that's where I am right now. And I know that that will be different in five or 10 years. Um, but the present position that I'm at is very much like a storyteller observer and someone who really wants an experience that's crazy for myself as well. And, uh, and who appreciates the rarity of that and gets <laughs> grumpy and cynical about it along the way. <laughs> if, if somebody's going to get the best footage of Bigfoot ever caught, Carl, it's going to be you, man. We got this. We he'll have a sun flare behind him. Oh and he'll yeah. be backlit and glowing <laughs> and looking luxurious in 120 frames a second. Oh, yes. Wow. So yeah. no, it's, it's, I think that uh, my answer is, is quite different from cross in this respect, or I'm, I'm very much like, um, have my horizons have been broadened to the like we were saying sort of the entirety of the phenomena coming from just that ghost world and now realizing that spending so long as a just a ghost person i missed stuff that was happening in in ufo world and and an alien world and and i know that people who are there right now are missing stuff that's happening in ghost world and encrypted world and all that it's sort of taking that all-encompassing view is so fun. And in terms of like technical stuff, I've always been, like I hate those labels on TV shows and stuff, but I've always been kind of like tech guy where it's like, I've got (laughs) all this stuff, I'm ready to go. I believe that entities can sort of uh, maybe need some sort of a carrier wave to transmit themselves into this world. Like it's all sort of working theories and like stuff that I'm really excited about playing more with. But I guess that that sort of works well in that sort of symbiotic relationship that we have, where it's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's see what's going on. I I guess in terms of like investigative styles in a sense, um, I have, I will say that, that since um, Hellier and the shows and stuff, I've definitely become more ready to just talk to anybody. Like I've never been really very shy, but Hellier and actually having the kind of pressure you could say to be like, we need to go like find this out and we need to talk to the witnesses and stuff like that. Actually being in the field and cold calling people and knocking on doors and like walking up to people in the gas station and strangers and asking in this, like, I think it is, it's understated that, that that's like an important step for anybody. I think in this field to like take where it's like, they're, they're out there. These people are on Facebook. Like you can chat with these potential um, witnesses if they're willing to don't ever bother anybody, but like just being extroverted in a sense, I guess is a, is a way that my, that my investigative style has changed. That's a really, really good point. Like you said, people, people are available, obviously when it's convenient to them, if they're open to talking with folks, but Yes, people are out there. Uh, people are, are willing to talk about it. And that does, it's an element, I think, I don't know if it's just because of the, the TV-ification of, of the paranormal. We're used to catching everything through someone else's show. People forget they can actually, you know, use their own mobility, go out there and speak mm-hmm. when they can. Um, it's a really big component, too, because as we said with, with Indrid Cold there uh, and the Grinning Man, they can easily blend into these stories. And uh, we see it all the time where, You'll have a, a semi-reputable 
just website posting kind of bunk information on these cases where they've taken it clearly from a Reddit approach, but they're almost trying to package it and sell it as if it's the original. Mm. Hence why I had to ask that question about what do you do when you're up against the Reddit phenomena when they already have their own Indrid Cole? They they have stories and stories. It's it's a it's a really, I think, a testament to the work that you're doing. Uh, and I, I really go back to saying things like the Estes method pioneering that or getting those new approaches out there i it's something we hope to see a lot more of in the future with just folks all around and um, we're seeing a lot of excitement come up because this hellier phenomena we're seeing a lot of people getting very interested in it because of lockdown so i'm really excited to see what the future of the paranormal brings and i think you guys are doing a great job to bridge those silos well thanks thank you and yeah. thanks for doing your part and and yeah telling these cool stories and also you know helping people like us get the word out it's appreciated well thank you too for your time this has been really really fun you guys are absolutely welcome back in the future anytime now on your yes. way out the door we always give people a chance to plug anything and everything that's going on so i don't know <laughs> if you have two, any projects to promote but at least social media what's going on in your lives Basically, at this point, we're, you know, obviously between projects, but Hellier is is the big one. Um, you can find it on YouTube and Amazon Prime, depending on your preference. Amazon Prime is going to be a little bit better quality and more up to date. But uh, if you don't have it, it's available for free because we want people to see it. Um, you can find me basically by name on any of the social media websites like uh, Instagram and Twitter. Um, Carl Pfeiffer is, uh, is the name on both of those. But Definitely stay tuned. We do have other projects. Hellier 3 will come eventually, we hope. Yes. Uh, we, we have plans to start on it, so that is a thing. Um, but that one involves a lot of talking to other people and interfacing with them, <laughs> which is a very like COVID-unfriendly sort of approach, right. so we have to wait. Um, and then we do have uh, another documentary project coming out, hopefully later this year, when that kind of uh, gets its own different gears out of the way um so so there are things coming definitely uh keep your your ear to the floor for more of those because we're always excited to, to share some news as that develops yeah check out uh hellier like carl said i guess for me individually you can find me on any of the platforms at connor j randall um i also have a little facebook page connor j randall paranormal where i like to uh post bloggish things and sit and chat on there sometimes too so um we we try and be available as we can and, and just have a blast talking with people about this so uh yeah yeah it's good stuff that's excellent. We'll have links for everyone in the uh, podcast show notes. So wherever you're listening to this, just to click away, grab those. Uh, we'll have a little blog post up on the website too. So chaosandshadow.com if anyone needs it. The episode will be embedded nice and easy. We'll throw in uh, mm -hmm. Greg and Dana's links so you can listen to them back to back if you'd like. Get all of this goodness. It, like I said, it's such a phenomenal project and it has influenced our investigative style. So we thank yes. you for the time uh, and, and just doing that good work. Everyone out there, thank you for listening and look forward to hearing more from Carl and Connor in the future. It sounds like some amazing projects. Until next time, everyone, stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.